Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 26th of November 2023, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking on Psalm 11. I wonder, have you ever received well-meant, yet ultimately bad advice in your life? I think that's the kind of worst advice we can actually be given, isn't it? When we we just get bad advice from people who are just bad at their job or unintentionally, or sorry, intentionally giving us bad advice, no, it's dreadful. But you learn from it and hopefully won't repeat the mistake you made of being misled again. Uh, I've worked in financial services for much of my adult life and have unfortunately seen a fair share of instances where a prospective client has come to us for help and you can see it's because they've been sold a totally inappropriate product in the past which was not remotely in their best interests and only recommended as it generated a large amount of commission for the advisor at the time. That sort of bad advice you hopefully only listen to once and afterwards are wiser and more vigilant going forward. But what about the advice from those who know us and genuinely mean well, yet get it so wrong. You know the type, friends who think they know exactly what you need and would like, but really only thinking about what worked for them. I'm thinking about this type of scenario you might see on social media. Someone sort of posts things, I'm going like, has anyone got any recommendations for a new box set to stream or watch? I prefer rom-coms. The response when people do that is never usually good. People don't think about what you actually would like, just what they liked and think you should like too. You liked Friends? You should watch Breaking Bad next. Instead of a bunch of friends who live in an apartment in New York and drink coffee, it's about two people who manufacture vast quantities of drugs and lots of people get brutally killed. You'll love it, just the same. You like the Queen's Gambit? I think Black Mirror's the one you want to watch next. It's just like it, but instead of being a drama about a female chess prodigy, it's a series of standalone short films about an unnerving dystopian future which leaves you unable to sleep afterwards because you're still scared by what you witnessed three hours beforehand. I don't know if anyone's actually had that kind of experience, but I do often see it on the likes of Facebook and Twitter and things. People just weighing in with their own suggestions, completely oblivious to what the person's actually asked for. Yeah, it's the same when you sort of ask for recommendations on books to read and say, I like quite easygoing, trashy novels. And your friend goes, oh, may I suggest James Joyce and Leo Tolstoy for you? Well-meaning advice, which turns out to be utterly dreadful. Psalm 11 feels a bit like a psalm written by someone who is exasperated at the rubbish advice being provided by well-meaning acquaintances and counsellors. Psalm 11 is a reflective, a meditative psalm. And the psalmist, David, begins his meditation in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. That's the first words. It sets out where David is at. He's having a difficult time in his life. He's under attack by his enemies. And it sounds like the threat is very real. 
This isn't just about people saying things and nasty stuff. It's about very real and actual threats to his life. But David begins this psalm of reflection with a bold statement. In the Lord I take refuge. And then David goes on to almost berate the person or persons who have been advising him to run away and seek shelter in the mountains. He says, how then? Can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Now, to be honest, I think that might have actually come as a bit of a surprise to the personal persons David is addressing. They themselves are most likely desperate to flee to the mountains and find refuge. And this is not generally seen as a bad thing to do when someone is threatening your life. You know, his advisors would have been part of his inner circle. Their lives were at risk too. There are many examples in the Bible of people just doing that, of fleeing when, thing, when times get tough. Think of Jonah. Think of the Israelites escaping Pharaoh. David himself you know, hid in caves and mountains when Saul was trying to kill him. And then Saul too, conversely, had to hide in caves when he thought his life was in danger. But whoever David is addressing seems to think they probably have pretty good case to recommend to David that they get out of danger quickly and go and hide somewhere safe. Sure, it's not fair what's happening to them, but the world is falling apart around them and they ask the very pertinent question of David. Come on, David. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is, no, this is it. This is, we want to be the good people for God, but everything is going to pot around us. What can we do? When we look around at the world today, we might well ask similarly, what can we do? Everything seems so volatile or dangerous or temporary or ever-changing. Where's our stability in life? Where's our refuge from the storms of this life? Running away and hiding it all, and hiding from it all, actually sounds like a pretty good idea half the time. Sure, we want to do the right thing. We want to be godly people. But honestly, what can we do? The first three verses of this psalm, uh, this meditative psalm, are like a question which David's repeating that's been asked to him. The remaining verses form David's answer. Because rather than fleeing to the mountains... David chooses to flee to God. He goes on to say, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates, hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. There's quite a lot to unpack in those five short, four or five short verses. But it's well worth doing, I think, to get the benefit of a psalm that perhaps maybe more than any of the ones we've looked at so far in this introductory series, 
really can speak to us, challenge us, and encourage us today. So David responds to that question, what can the righteous do? And he does so by reminding himself and those around him of the Lord's position, his heavenly throne. Do we remind ourselves of that? When we read the news or hear of troubling realities in this world, do we remind ourselves of God's lofty position of sovereignty? From within his holy temple, upon his heavenly throne, the place from where God is portrayed as laying down the law and adjudicating, God is in a unique position. It's not on earth, it's not earthly. It's above all. It's unapproachable and unassailable. You can't attack a palace and throne that are somewhere you can't even get to. The wicked have their target on earth, the righteous. But no matter what happens to God's subjects, the Lord our King will never be defeated. People can rebel against him, and they do all the time but they'll never truly defeat him. He is in charge. He's sovereign. No one on earth can touch him. That's quite a powerful opening statement. But then we get this unexpected comment, this greatness of God. I expect to be followed with um, you know, David's indignant rebuke to his counselors going the Lord is so mighty he will smite his enemies why could you possibly think anything different but David raises an important point we do go through difficult times but David sees this as a way for God to see our true selves and our true faith he says the Lord examines the righteous David understood that the crisis he was going through, he saw it as a period of testing or of discipline, part of the process whereby the Lord examines or disciplines the righteous person. And David makes a good point about God's judgment also. God judges the righteous and the wicked, and he hates the wicked. These verses that we read are quite confronting to us. As David states that while the Lord tests the righteous and examines them, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And this is not language that we as Christians, accustomed as we are to the truth that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us, this is not language that feels as familiar. But we know too that God, the God of the Old and the New Testament, particularly the Old Testament, grants his people victory in battle. And that may come at the expense of the slaughter of their enemies. And it can feel hard to reconcile this God with the God who sent his son to die for us so that all might be forgiven. But what it does mean is that there is still no escaping judgment. God still hates wickedness, but he offers the wicked the chance of forgiveness. 
As Stephen said, we're coming to the end of this introductory series of looking at the Psalms. I'm sure we'll dip back into it at some point in the next year. But I think Psalm 11 feels like a good one to finish with as we move into this time of Advent starting next Sunday. Because Christmas is all about a message of hope, of redemption, of salvation, of God's love for the world. And the final verse of Psalm 11 is too one of help. The righteous, the just, the upright will see God's face. And so, through his meditation on the situation he finds himself in, and in response to the advice of those around him, David presents us with a psalm, not just of comfort and reassurance, but also a challenge. Because the challenge is to not just stand firm in the face of persecution and adversity, and therefore trust in God, but to actively live a righteous life. On the one hand, then, taking refuge in God means hiding ourselves in Jesus, the rock who has cleft for us. But taking refuge in God also means going a step further. It means living a life of holiness in this chaotic world, one completely devoted to God. In Christ, God's people really can perform the righteous deeds that God loves, even when the foundations are destroyed, as David's friends say, and the troubles surround us. And who sincerely, any who sincerely follow after God in righteousness and purity, can be assured of safety under his protection. This could be a nice reassuring place to end this sermon with a couple more just softly, softly challenges. When you're really tested, will you stand firm, keep the faith and have hope? Will you run away when times are hard or will you run to God? Do you turn back with God at your side and face the difficult times? And if I'm honest, those words are actually just Christian sound bites load of cliches, a bit like a motivational seminar for church. Fight the good fight, Christchurch. See you next Sunday. The application of the psalm, the reality to us, what does it mean to us, still seems to be missing. Now, how should we perhaps ex need to experience life as David did, as it prompted him to write the psalm? Is that what would get us to really, truly trust in God? Do we have the courage to stand firm when our enemies are firing arrows at us from out of the darkness and not to choose to flee to the nearest mountain range and find a cave to hide in? Are we going to be waiting for fiery coals, burning sulfur and a scorching wind to halt our enemies in their tracks? Perhaps taking it that literally isn't that helpful either. Um, in the relative comfort of New Malden, we're unlikely to find ourselves in those sort of situations. For some Christians in the world, facing persecution, actually it's not too far from their reality. But for us, in our relative comfort, how exactly does this psalm feel relevant to us today?
What are the times when we want to flee? But God calls us to turn to him and engage with the discomfort of the challenge that faces us. I keep finding myself drawn to the question asked of David at the end of verse 3. What can the righteous do? When we consider David's reflection that God examines us, what do we think God sees? Does God ask of us, what can the righteous do? Do we find being a Christian and doing what we know God wants us to do in every moment of our daily lives, sometimes just too much of a challenge that we want to flee from the obvious responsibilities in front of us. Can you remember the first time, say, you walked past a homeless person in the street? You were probably quite young. And did the young you want to sell everything you had, give up all your pocket money, just to help that person? Because it just didn't seem right that you lived at home and they lived on the street. Do you remember the first time maybe at school you saw someone being bullied and you wanted to step in but just felt afraid? Do you just somehow wish you could prevent all the nastiness and evil in the world from happening and yet it just seems too insurmountable, too much to do anything? How could I possibly make a difference? How can I face the danger to step in, to stand up for my faith, to stand up for others. It doesn't matter how good I think I am as a person. I can't face it all on my own. In a world so broken, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? It shouldn't be a negative question. This is a positive opportunity. Psalm 11 very much feels like a psalm for our time. It is God's word to us through the words of David. It shows us how to struggle on when times are difficult, but firmly trust in God in the midst of crisis and tremendous difficulty. But it also points us to David's greater descendant, Jesus. We're promised that the Lord loves justice and the upright will see his face. And through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, we are brought into his presence. Where might you be challenged this Advent, Christmas time, from next week onwards? What can the righteous do to make a difference this Christmas? How's that for a starting point? When I was thinking of whether I'd have a second reading to accompany Psalm 11, I found myself being drawn to the Beatitudes. It felt like there was a kind of common thread in both these passages. And the Beatitudes, the the blessings, if you will, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, take place at the start of his ministry. And it goes, and Jesus kind of goes all in on telling those listening that blessings come through adversity. Being rich and successful doesn't mean 
that you've necessarily been blessed by God. It means you've been successful in life. But if it's come at the expense of only seeking materialistic gain in this world and not what God has to offer, then you're missing out on the real blessings that God does offer you. When we consider the hope we have at Christmas time, hope of a promised saviour, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, a coming redeemer, bringing light to his broken world, it can be very easy to just feel it as a nice, warm, comforting, rose-tinted view of Christianity. But Jesus never held back from reminding us that life would still be full of challenges, and yet God still calls us to live the righteous life for him. But Jesus says these times are a blessing. It's when you know that God is still in control and still there, never leaving you. It's when you know that he examines the hearts of the righteous and the wicked alike and loves to see righteousness. Blessing in adversity, the courage to stand firm. It is hard to trust in God sometimes, particularly when we just can't see the future ahead, when everything feels so troubled. And the Psalms are full of words of comfort and inspiration, some of which you may well have encountered in this first series, looking at the first 11 of them. And so too are the words of Jesus himself. And so I'm just going to end by rereading some of the Beatitudes again, but using a slightly different translation from the message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your heart and your mind put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. And you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution because the persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom.